This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Tuchus. Tuchus. That's slang for butt or rear end. That's the nothing personal word of the day. Why? Because that is exactly where Alex Bregman and Juan Soto in the days of yore would have gotten hit after carrying the bat in game six of the World Series after they hit a home run. Yes, they actually took a swing, hit a home run, and carried the bat all the way to the first base coach. We're going to talk much more about it and what didn't happen, who apologized, who didn't. But my solution is that when I was in baseball, no doubt about it, there would have been a pitch into the Tuchus. What's changed in baseball? Why is it okay to actually pimp a home run the way players do? Because it's entertainment. It's fine. No need to apologize for any of it. But let's actually talk about why it happens that two players treat the same situation so differently. Game six of the World Series was one of the most memorable game sixes. I was trying to think back. Obviously, 2003 game six was my number one game six in history when Josh Beckett beat the New York Yankees. He pitched in a complete game shutout. And I was thinking while watching the game that the days of complete games, where are they? How can we expect a pitcher, Straussburg, can he actually go nine innings for the Washington Nationals? Can Justin Verlander do what he hasn't done for the Houston Astros? When you have a chance to get your second ring in three years and you're the ace of a staff, you've got to do better than what Verlander did. Everyone talks about him that he's the guy, the co-ace, maybe the Cy Young Award winner. Then explain to me how it's possible that he goes 93 pitches and he doesn't give you any length. 15 outs. That's all Verlander did. It's becoming a thing. He cannot win in the World Series. He's actually historic in his inability to win. Yet, for whatever reason, we thought it would be different. We thought last night would be the opportunity for him to exercise his demons and to allow the Astros to do it. But he actually did the opposite. And he did not listen to my advice. I yelled it from the podcast. I yelled it from the top of the mountain. Why wouldn't he try for a first inning in the bullpen? I just don't understand it. Well, guess what? He goes into the game in the first inning. Immediately, Turner gets on base, gets sacrificed over. And then, wouldn't you know it, Rendon, yes, indeed. Eaton sacrificed him over the number two hitter. Rendon, the number three hitter, through the shift 
I love it when the Astros get outsmarted. I love it when teams do a huge shift, which they do all the time, and then hits against the shift happen. When I was part of the competition committee with Major League Baseball, we would study that and talk about, should we get rid of the shift? Is that something that would help baseball? And what we'd always say is, hey, hitters need to make the adjustment. Well, last night was the exact example of that. Anthony Rendon had a runner in scoring position. We used to call that ducks on a pond. What do you do when you've led the Major League Baseball and RBI during the previous season, 126 during the regular season? You hit it where they ain't, and that's what Rendon did. Good for him, one nothing lead, Verlander gets out of it. Strasburg comes in in the first inning, another ace, more problems in the first inning. Gives up two runs. Springer leads off the game. He's the catalyst for that team from the leadoff position, much like Trey Turner is. He gets a double hard hit off the wall. Eventually, Altuve scores him on a sacrifice fly. Why does that matter? Because you've manufactured a run, and then your cleanup hitter comes up, Alex Bregman, and hits a home run. Boom. Two to one for the Astros. Everyone's thinking, it's ring time. It's goggle time. It's champagne time. What they didn't realize is that Strasburg was just beginning, and he would actually not give up another hit. Strasburg then spent the next basically seven-plus innings completely shutting down the Houston Astros. He used his combination of pitches. He was using his fastball, change, curveball. He had everything working for him, and he somehow was able to quiet the noise. One thing about Strasburg is his in-game adjustments. He was tipping his pitches in the first inning. He admitted it, folks, after the game that he was tipping his pitches, and the Astros had figured it out, and so had the Nationals. I've talked about it before. The bench players for a World Series team are critical. We had the greatest bench players for the Marlins, and I remember our manager, Jack McKeon, would talk to these bench players and say, listen, your job is to keep our team going. You are really the spark plugs of this team. Talking about Andy Fox and Brian Banks and Mike Mordecai and Mike Redmond. What are they doing? They're working during the game. They're not eating sunflower seeds. They're not watching movies on the iPads that are in the dugout. They're focused on the opposing team the pitcher, the tendencies, and they saw that Strasburg was tipping pitches. They went to their teammate. The Astros saw it as well, and Strasburg then corrected it for the second inning. That's called an in-game correction. That's called the value added. That's not analytics. That's not scouting or development. That is your 25 guys on your team all working toward a common goal. How does it manifest itself? In Strasburg shutting down the Astros. But What good is shutting down the Astros? You need offense. You need to find a way back into the game. Juan Soto gets them back in the game with a fifth inning home run. Now, what was so curious about the Juan Soto home run and the Anthony Rendon home run, which we'll talk about, but first we're going to focus on Alex Bregman and Juan Soto and the great bat carry of 2019. Alex Bregman hits a home run in the first inning to give a 2-1 lead. He carries the bat to first base, to hand it to his first base coach, Don Kelly. Except Don Kelly, the first base coach, has no idea what's happening. He tries to hand the bat off, Bregman does to Kelly. 
the handoff goes terribly. Kelly's used to giving a high five on a home run. And then all of a sudden, Bregman still has the bat when he passes first base. Sort of drops the bat, throws it back toward the first base coach, continues running around the bases. That's called the bat carry. That's called showmanship. And that's why our word of the day was tuchus, because Bregman should have gotten hit there in the old days. Juan Soto had a different approach. Let the kids play. That's the marketing slogan for Major League Baseball, letting these kids play. Juan Soto is one of the great kids in all of baseball. Let them play. What it, Basically, what it happens, Juan Soto in the fifth inning hits it home run, carries the bat. I kid you not, this is what he did. He actually carried his bat to his first base coach, dropped it at the feet of his first base coach, smiled and ran around the bases. I'm sitting watching the game and I am cheering. I'm cheering because finally we are doing something in baseball that ignores all of the old people who don't want to have any fun. That ignores all the old people who believe in traditional baseball. Everyone needs to wear a coat and tie and clap quietly and calmly. No, this is 2019. If we're letting the kids play, we're letting them play. It's a great idea, right? What is wrong with doing something different. What's wrong with doing something exciting? From my standpoint, I am one of the old people. In baseball for 18 years, I'm over 50 years old. And why do I love it? Because I recognize that if you're a fan of a game or any business where your audience or customers are getting older and older and then dying, that's the end of your business. Just imagine if baseball's demographics keep getting older and older. What happens? No more fans. All the big talk is about the rating of the World Series. Fewer people are watching these games. We need more people to watch the games. How do you get people to watch? You tell them it's okay to have fun. It's okay for sarcasm. It's okay basically not to believe that we're splitting the atom or curing cancer. None of which we're doing. We're trying to entertain people. So so I'm watching... Strasburg, I'm watching Soto, I'm watching Bregman, and then the seventh inning happens. The seventh inning drama was something the likes of which I can't believe. I don't recall ever seeing, actually. I've seen a lot of delays. We, I've seen rain delays in the World Series. I've seen arguments. I've seen managers get thrown out. Bobby Cox got thrown out in 1996. He lost his mind against the Yankees. I've seen umpires walk away. I've seen spitting on umpires. I've seen umpires inciting contact and inciting anger. What I've never seen before is a four and a half minute delay on a play that's not even reviewable. John Sherholtz, erstwhile of the Atlanta Braves, Hall of Famer, who helped develop instant replay that we tried to perfect in the competition committee in Major League Baseball, we are rolling over in our not yet graves over what happened in last night's game. It's the opposite of everything I was just talking about, which is keeping things fun and exciting and moving. It's not fun watching umpires hold their hands to their ears while they're communicating with Major League Baseball umpires in New York over a play that never should have been replayed at all. The umpire, Sam Holbrook, made the exact right call. He was in the exact right position to call Trey Turner out for interference. It's a judgment call not worthy of a replay. Dave Martinez loses his mind and gets ejected while we're at commercial, so we only see it after the fact. What was interesting about Dave Martinez losing his mind is, A, he had the rule wrong. 
He's arguing about a judgment call, trying to protest the game. You cannot protest a judgment call. And he's got a heart condition. Exactly what was he thinking going after the umpire that way? So he ends up getting tossed from the game. And what I loved about that is all the people all over the world watching thinking, wow, I guess the bench coach is now managing the game. Well, no, that's not what happens. And no, Dave Martinez did not wear a Bobby Valentine mustache in order to keep managing from the bench after being ejected. What actually happened is that Dave Martinez was managing the game. And he manages from just inside the tunnel. I've been around every manager I've had, and there have been plenty. Every time they've gotten ejected, they are still calling the shots and managing the game. It's not up to the bench coach, even in a regular season game. Now, I will go down and sit with the manager in the clubhouse, in his office after he's been ejected, and we'll sit and talk, and we'll think about the game, and I'll listen to what they're doing. But in a game like a postseason game or any sort of important game, which to me is all 162, the manager is telling the bench coach, there are people who work in the clubhouse, and they run onto the bench and give the information and then run back. They're not using phones. They're not using cell phones or iPads or Twitter or iMessage. They're communicating the old-fashioned way, which is, get that guy out of there now. He's got two more batters. Make sure Joe Smith is warming up in the bullpen. Scherzer, Straussburg is going eight and a third. After the first out of that inning, he's coming out. In comes Doolittle. You think all of that was happening without Dave Martinez knowing? Absolutely not, nor should it have. If you're going to get ejected from the game, which is what he did, you also have to have a plan in place, which every team does, of how the communication is going to go post-ejection. So I love the fact that Dave Martinez, and he still gets credit for the win for that game as the manager of record, even though he did get ejected. And it all sets up for the crown jewel of the baseball season. It is Game 7. If you cannot get yourself excited for a Game 7, and we're going to talk about it throughout this podcast and, of course, tomorrow, but if you can't get yourself excited to watch an entire Game 7, what is it that makes you excited? This is it. There will be a trophy given out, and the winner of tonight's game gets a chance to design a ring. This is what you play for from the beginning of spring training. Every front office decision that's made and the front office decisions start getting made tonight after the last out is made, that's when the offseason starts. As an executive, the last game of the year was always my favorite, even when we won the World Series, because instead of being in last place or fourth place or third place or winning the World Series, I am back tied for first. As of tomorrow, every single team in baseball is zero and zero, and everyone has the hope that in 2020, they get to win the World Series. But first things first, game seven tonight. You know, I got to try to figure out in my head how it works with players when they're meeting the media. And we have PR guys who basically their job is to be around players and to protect players from themselves. And it's changed a lot with the advent of Twitter and Instagram and all of social media because players have access to actually make asses of themselves all day long. And so do executives. So do I. I have the opportunity to make a mistake 24 hours a day. I've got Twitter rules. I won't tweet at certain times. I won't think about tweeting at other times. That's normal. But players, it's harder for them because they don't realize necessarily sort of the filter. And they have to meet the media at least 
on media day in football and baseball. You're meeting the media if you're a starting pitcher before the game, after the game. In the postseason, it's even more amplified. Baker Mayfield is in the middle of a very tough stretch, actually. And the reason he is is that he's on a team where all of a sudden the Cleveland Browns, believe it or not, they had expectations. They have a new coach in Freddie Kitchens, and they need to find a way to play better. And they are beginning to show frustration. And the first way, as a president of a team, that I look for a team that's on the brink of collapse is I'm watching how the players are interacting with the media. So just today, Baker Mayfield gave everyone in the Browns organization an example of why things are not going well this year. The penalty happened and we're the clock's the not running. No, 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 stop saying but. I just told you the clock was running and we had a penalty. You want to give them the ball back? No, you don't play. You don't know it. It's just plain and simple. Were you happy with that job? Was I happy with the job? No, we didn't score points. That's the dumbest question you could ask. What? What was that? Uh, Baker, let me give you two hints, that, right? PR 101. Number one, what you don't do is storm away from your media session and walk out, unless, of course, you've got one, two, three, four, five, or six rings. Then you can do whatever you want. Baker, what exactly have you accomplished in your NFL career other than not raising to expectations? You've never won a thing. Yet you look at a person in the media who buys bar- ink by the barrel, never fight someone who buys ink by the barrel, when all you have is a Twitter account, even if you have a million followers. But you then look at a reporter and say, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard, and then storm out. And then he doubles down. Favorite part of the story. May I read to you Baker Mayfield's tweet after he met with the media? Everybody wants to hear the truth until they actually get it. Dot, 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 dot. Baker, it's three dots, not four. I am who I am and always have been. I don't know who you are and I don't know who you've been. He didn't write that. That's me. Don't call it emotional when it's convenient and then passion when it fits. I care about winning. So yeah, I'm frustrated. If I was to act like it's okay to lose, then you all would say that I've gotten complacent. It's if I were to act, not if I was. My sense of urgency is at an all-time high. And if I offend anybody along the way, dot, 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 that's too bad. Well, Baker, let me, let's break down this tweet, if you don't mind, because I guarantee you that your PR people, your agent, and the Browns did not approve this tweet prior to being sent. I am who I am and always have been. Don't call it emotional when it's convenient. So, Baker, it's not that we're calling you emotional. We're asking you to actually give your opinion of why certain plays were called and why the of the play and the result of the play was not as it was drawn up to be. We're not questioning your core values as a man, as a as a quarterback, or we're not even talking about the fact that your team is not performing. We're actually asking specifically about a certain play and the result of that play. We're not saying you don't care about winning, but you certainly don't manifest that care by storming out. And if you think the Browns organization and the front office is pleased with how that looks, here's why we're not. Because you've drawn attention to the negativity of what's happening on the field. If you want to get out there and tweet something about how much you want to win, that's great. Tweet about what you want to do to make us win more. Let's not tweet to explain why you were dismissive of the media. Tweet to explain what you're doing to help the team. Help the team win a quarter, win a half, and then win a game. And then we'll talk about making the playoffs. Baker, you've got a lot to learn about what to do going forward. But don't worry, 
you are completely covered by the fact that you've got players surrounding you who are doing things even more ridiculous and stupid than what you did to the media. Let's talk about Jamal Adams. Jamal Adams did it. He finally figured out a way to tweet something that, to me, gets him not just spoken to, but I would think about, there's no demoting. There should be demoting in football. I guess maybe send him to the XFL. Is that a demotion? I'm not sure. But I want to teach Jamal Adams one thing about professional sports. You are a player. You are an employee. You have a contract. You have no say in anything other than what you do when you're on the field and your number is called. So learn the playbook, run your plays. That's all I want to hear about. If you want to have social issues, great. Make them informed and educated and cause conversation. If you want to talk politics, great. Have an informed opinion that's based on knowledge. Teach people, inform people, educate people. But this is what he decided to tweet. At the end of the week last week, I sat down with the GM and Coach Gaze and told them I want to be here in New York. I was told yesterday by my agent that the general manager went behind my back and shot me around to teams even after I asked him to keep me here. Crazy business. Well, Jamal, what's crazy is that you thought that you weren't going to be traded or being shopped. The way trades and the deadline and it works in the real world, every single player gets shopped every single day because we want to get better as a team. And you're simply a piece. And if we can get better by moving you, we're going to move you. We don't care. And it's not behind your back. I was always clear when running a team. I would go up to players and they would ask me and I worked with GMs and with owners and with, I worked with one owner and GMs and a lot of baseball people. They wanted to be very secretive. I always disagreed with them and I did whatever I wanted because I was the president of the team. I would tell players when we were thinking about trading them. I would let them know what we were doing because it's not a surprise. You're overpaid and you stink. We are trying to trade you. You're underpaid. We're not trading you. You are, you want to get out of Miami? Guess what? Play so well that you make so much money that we can't afford you. I've said that to players. When players don't get traded and they thought they were going to a contender, I was honest. You didn't get traded to a contender because no one wanted you. Or no one would take your money and we're not going to pay for you to play for a contender with the dreck that we were offered back in a trade. Again, we're not splitting the atom or curing cancer. This is sports. This is business. What's the business of sports? It's making sure that you have players who perform on the field and give you more value than what you pay them every two weeks. That's the business I was in. So Jamal Adams, for whatever reason, he got all out of sorts because he felt as though the Jets had done him wrong. Done him wrong because they were trying to trade him? And he tweets the fact that, I was told by my agent that they went behind my back and shot me around. I want to be here in New York. Well, Jamal, why do you want to be on a one in six team if you could be traded? Wouldn't you rather be on a team that has a chance to win? Or is it just that you don't want to inconvenience yourself and play for a different team because you have to move during the season? Either way, it's a bad look. It's a bad look for you. It's a bad look for your agent. It's not a bad look for the Jets. And that's what you tried to do. I saw yesterday, 
I've spent so much money over the years as an organization trying to hire advertising agencies, trying to find something that can go viral and something that's funny. But then I'd get in trouble because we'd create an ad that sort of makes fun of other teams. And then, do you know, it just reminds me, we came up with something many, many years ago in the early 2000s. We put the name of visiting teams on in the urinals at the ballpark. So we put, let's say, the logo of the Atlanta Braves, and we would put it in the men's urinal so men would actually be peeing on the logo of the teams we were playing against. I love that. That's funny to me. Like, we're the Marlins and we're trying to get you. Except we did it for like half a year and then word got out either to our owner or to MLB and we had to shut that down. We made videos that we would play on the Jumbotron. Granted, it was only in front of like 5,000 people, but I would pretend it was in front of 50,000 people. And the videos would be viral videos and funny videos of doing something with against our opponent, making our opponent look bad. Not disrespectful, but funny, humorous. Well, Bud Light found a way to make a 15-minute star out of Jeff Adams, and I thought it was brilliant. Look at him right there. Gray shirt surrounded by red. His name is Jeff Adams. And when I saw the play live, Fox basically stopped the game and talked about it. But look at him. He saved his beers. He is double fisting it at a Nats game. Double fisting it with two Bud Lights. It's a dream come true. But how do you monetize that? When you are a company and you're in advertising and you're the agency for Budweiser, and I've met with them because we've tried to get business from them, they're looking for these moments. This was a silver platter moment, and Bud Light did not drop the ball. They found him. They found out who he was. They paid for him to fly to Houston, and they created a commercial about him and made T-shirts, and they're monetizing it. Look, always save the beers. He got hit in the gut by a home run. This guy's a moron. Of course you don't save the beers when a ball is coming at your head or your gut. I don't care how much cushion you have or how big your beer belly is. Have you ever been hit by a fly ball directly? The fact that he didn't pass out in a pool of his own vomit and urine is surprising to me because when you're double fisting beers and you get hit in the gut, something bad's going to happen. But Bud Light turned it around and they made something good happen. And they flew Jeff Adams, and they made a commercial, and they made T-shirts. Congratulations, Jeff. But you're at 14 minutes and counting. <laughs> I, what do you do after a game six? I, um, I'm not exactly going to go to sleep, right? No one can. I can't. I, I, I don't sleep a lot. I have trouble sleeping. I've tried everything. My grandmother told me to try hot water and lemon and I found that that didn't work except it made me want to go to the bathroom more during the night. I've tried all sorts of over-the-counter. There's melatonin. I've tried everything. But really what works is nothing. So after game six, I have to watch a movie. What are you in the mood to watch when you've just seen history? First time ever, six games in a row in any postseason series, in any sport, the road team wins. What am I going to watch? The Road Warrior. We put it up as Mad Max 2 because that's the actual name of the movie. But do you know, in 1981, it was released as The Road Warrior because people in America had never heard of Mad Max 1. So if you put Mad Max 2 out, who would go see it? 
and it turns out The Road Warrior, for me, was probably the best action movie I've ever seen, with the best car chase scene I've ever seen. And who's in it? That's right, you see him there, a young Mel Gibson. I'm not going to give Mel Gibson any love because he grew up to be someone who I can't tolerate due to his beliefs and his anti-Semitism and misogyny and every other thing that represents everything that I'm the opposite of. But that said, in those days, he made a good movie. So I'm going to keep using the pronoun he and him, not they and them or her and she. It's just he. And what I'm talking about is a young 24-year-old who goes into basically a world and the future of the world was the 1990s if you can imagine that. And it was a world where there's been an apocalypse. We'd call it now dystopian. And they're trying to get gas. Mel Gibson has 200 words of dialogue. This whole movie, directed by George Miller, is really based on action. And it manifested itself later on, just recently, with Charlize Theron, who made an updated Mad Max with Zoe Kravitz, the new Catwoman. Cannot wait for that. Literally cannot wait. Coca and I are going to be together seeing Catwoman. And Tom Hardy took over the role that he had back in the day. Tom Hardy was fine, but nothing will emulate the old road warrior. So if you're looking for a movie of two hours of fun, the likes of which you probably haven't had, check out Mad Max 2, colon, The Road Warrior. You won't regret it. Well, tonight I have no idea what movie I'm going to watch, but I have a feeling. I have a feeling, but I'm not going to give it away because I'm going to review it tomorrow. But first I get a Game 7. And what's remarkable about a Game 7, it's actually, uh, I tweeted it out, and if you follow me at David P. Sampson, uh, sometimes my tweets get ratioed, sometimes they're funny, sometimes they only make me laugh, but they always have a point. I'm not just tweeting to tweet, I take what people say and I give you my perspective of it, or I just come up with something on my own that's in my head, and what's in my head is that uh, this game is spectacular. Why? Because anytime you have a winner take all, it's the dream. It's why we love the wild card round in baseball. It's why we love the NFL playoffs. Because you know at the end of the day, in football in about three hours, in hockey in about two hours and 40 minutes, and in baseball in about four hours and 52 minutes, one team will have misery for the rest of their lives and one team will raise a trophy. And I love the trophy ceremony. And I can't wait to talk about it tomorrow because I want to look at how people react, what the owner says, what the team president's thinking, what the players, who the MVP is. All of those things are guaranteed to happen. But first, how do we get there? Who's going to win game seven and how are they going to do it? Well, there's several things I want to talk about, the keys to the game. Uh, Max Scherzer, where are you, Max? You're at the ballpark right now. But how did you feel when you opened your eyes? And I don't mean when you went to the bathroom in the middle of the night. I'm talking about when you put your feet to the floor in room number 1422 at the team hotel. How did you feel in your neck? How did your trap feel? Because what I know you did is you were raising your arm. You did a little bit of this because you needed to check yourself out. And then you called your trainer. The trainer called the GM. The GM called the owner. So everybody within the Nats organization as you listen to this podcast or watch it on YouTube or have listened to it and thank you for subscribing and rating, Scherzer is either good to go or not good to go. That's the first key. The second key is how many outs will Scherzer go? As you know, 
And I have this great stat that to me makes me smile when I think about Max Scherzer. In game one, he went 112 pitches, which is fine. What isn't fine is he only got 15 outs. That is not acceptable. In order for the Nats to win this game, they've got to get more out of Scherzer, more length. However, Dave Martinez is going to have a very short string that he's going to pull. He's not going to put up with Scherzer not getting the out. So who's backing him up? Ah, you're all saying Annabelle Sanchez. He's ready to go. Well, let me give another thought to the people in the Nats organization and what I think should happen. Steven Strasburg should be available to pitch in Game 7. How can that be? Well, exhibit number one, Your Honor, is Randy Johnson. Pitched Game 6 through 104 pitches in the World Series Game 6. And guess what? He then pitched one and a third in Game 7. Yes, that's right. When the Diamondbacks needed a win, Randy Johnson took the ball, pitched one and a third in their victory over Mariano Rivera. Rivera in Game 7 of the 2001 World Series. Why am I saying that Strasburg needs to be available? Because that is what you do when you're trying to win a ring. You have reckless indifference toward your own career, toward your own health of your own arm. You do whatever needs to be done, including if you can't literally raise your hand for two weeks after the World Series. But what will the Nats do? What will Dave Martinez do? Will he do what A.J. Hinch is threatening and not pitch Garrett Cole in this Game 7? Because it's exactly the same situation. Let's talk about it. Garrett Cole, he's available to pitch out of the bullpen tonight, and he may need to follow up Greinke because Greinke, everyone's talking about how great Greinke did in Game 3. He was horrific. Getting you 14 outs is unacceptable. 95 pitches, whatever, 14 outs, that's the problem. Who should be pitching after Greinke? It's not Arkady. No, it's got to be Garrett Cole. And he's got to be able to go, he should be able to go two-plus innings in this game following Greinke. But A.J. Hinch went public saying, ah, he may not be available. We got to make sure he's in good shape for his free agency. Well, we're going to wait to see here because that's the key, big key to the game. scherzer Strasburg versus Greinke and Cole. Which combination of pitchers will get the most outs? And then the question is, what stops them from getting outs? And the answer is, who on the offensive side for these teams, who are the keys? So let's talk about, obviously, easy that you've got Rendon. That is certainly going to be a key to this game. Can he repeat what he did? If he does, he's going to be the MVP of Game 6. But really what you're looking at is who are the role players and who are the table setters who are going to make the difference? And it's pretty easy. When you're the Nationals or the Astros, you need your leadoff hitter. When we built the Marlins in 03, we got a ring because we had Juan Pierre and Luis Castillo at the top of the lineup, and they were on base, one of the two of them, every single time through the lineup to allow for Pudge in the number three hole to get RBIs, or the cleanup hitter Miguel Cabrera. Well, think about how these teams are set up. It's exactly the same. They've got Springer, Houston does, followed by Altuve, and then you bring in Brantley, and then you bring in Bregman. They're the run producers. It's perfect. You've got Turner at the top, and then it goes to Eaton. And then you've got the run producers, Rendon and Soda. The question is, who will get on base more, Springer or Turner? Turner has got to be on more than Springer for the Nats to win this game. Another way to see. Game 7s are full of them, but these are the keys. The next key 
is do the run producers produce for the hitters who are on base? You have seen Rendon and Soto have a great series. Bregman, his average is not what it needs to be, but he is hitting home runs and driving in runs. Which run producers will score the table setters who are on base? That's critical. And then, obviously, it has an impact on the entire game because once the run producers produce, that stops the pitchers from getting outs. That causes the bullpen to be needed. That's when you're going to see Cole. That's when you're going to see Strasburg, Annabelle Sanchez, and which of those combinations. And then you're saying to me, well, is that how Game Seven's going to work? And I say to you, nope, Game Seven's going to work because there's going to be an unsung hero. There's going to be someone who will stand up and they will become the story of the game. It's not going to be who you think because it never is. That's the beautiful part about Game 7. could be Alvarez who hits a home run. It could be Tucker who comes off the bench for Houston who gets a game-winning hit. This will end with a game-winning hit by somebody. For the Nationals, it could be Para. It absolutely could be Robles. It could be someone we're not talking about, and that's what makes it so interesting to watch. And that's why when you are building your team, you've got to be deep. You've got to be 25 deep because when it comes time to win the ring, you need contributions from everybody. Houston, they're at home. Does that give them a slight advantage? That's why the betting advantage, it's about 130 to 140, minus 130, 140. Why is that? Houston's been the best team at home. Let's ignore the fact that they're 0-3 in the World Series. Let's ignore the fact that the Nationals are 3-0 and in the World Series. You play all season to get that home field advantage. The Astros have to act like they've got swagger, they've got confidence, and they've got to keep that crowd in the game, keep that home field advantage. It's shocking to me what happened in Game 6 under Verlander. They were simply unable to keep any momentum. Now, Strasburg has a lot to do with that. I had a... uh GM named Mike Hill, who's who's currently still with the Marlins. And uh, he worked with Larry Beinfest, who was our GM. And they taught me something that I've never forgotten. And I used to think as a fan, because I would watch as a fan when I first got into baseball. For the first few years of my career, I was just a fan. I was just learning. Uh, and some would say I never learned, but I would argue that I did. But what I learned from them early on is when I get upset when we get shut out or we wouldn't be getting hits or we wouldn't get a key hit and I would be angry at the offense. I'd want to fire the hitting coach. They said to me, listen, David, you have to understand your team is always going to look dead when they don't hit. And I would always blame it on the coach or the manager. We're not motivated. We've got to have a team meeting. We've got to pick it up. But the truth is, Good pitching always makes a team look like they're not focused. It always makes your opposing team's manager look like he's not doing his job. It always makes your offense look like you didn't do enough for it. And it's all about the pitching. And that's when I first learned that pitching and defense are going to get you the bling. And when you look at what the Nats have done and what the Astros have done, they built their entire pitching staff, their entire team based on real starters, not openers. Not middle-of-the-rotation crap starters who we would always try to sign because that's all we could afford. We're talking top-of-the-rotation, major, major free agents and major draft choices who you may have overpaid with their bonuses, but they've got the two best rotations, and you want to know why they're playing a game seven and the rest of us are just watching and cheering? The reason is because they built their team on pitching. 
So the winner of tonight's game is the winner in the pitching department. That's what I believe. So you're saying to me, how is it, David, that you said it's both pitching and an unsung hero with the bat? Well, that's the first rule of having your own show. I can't be wrong now. I've told you that it's either going to be the best pitching or the unsung hero who gets the game-winning hit. I'm a winner. So for the pick of the day, I'm guaranteeing a win, right? Because I'm telling you, it's either going to be the Astros or the Nets. That's my pick of the day. The baseball season will definitely end tonight. This way, I'm guaranteed not to give you a losing pick. It is impressive. Literally. Thank you, Coca, for putting it on the air. It is impressive how bad I've been. I had the Astros ending the series in six games last night. Um, I'm trying to think, did that happen? No, it did not. That's why we're here together. So when I examined this game, I thought to myself, do I want to stay with my prediction preseason, which was the Astros winning, or do I want to say, listen, the Nationals have momentum. They actually have a better opportunity to win this game. So I then dug a little deeper, and I looked into Game 7's home and road. Well, in the 39 Game 7's, it's 19 and 20. So there's no real home field advantage. And certainly in this series, there definitely has not been a home field advantage. So then I went a little deeper. Who's hot and who's not in Game 7's? And I looked at this series, and you look at Rendon, and you look at what he's hitting, and then you look at his numbers specifically against Greinke, and you look at back at the Game 3 box score, and all of a sudden I found that I'm pretending I'm this big-time gambler who's going through and giving you points and stats and telling you what to do. Well, I got a surprise for you. In baseball, the reason why it's so hard to win is that none of that actually matters. And then I found the stat. I want to make sure I read it to you right. I have it here. I get all these pieces of paper, which I love, but they come up with sort of these sort of stats. So here we go. There have been 41 different players to homer in a World Series Game 7. And the last one to do it was George Springer, which means that George Springer has the odds of being the next one to do it. Now, is that value added as I'm trying to decide which way to go? That George Springer, the leadoff hitter, was the last person to hit a home run in a game seven? But here's the problem with stats. That was the last game seven. So then I go on and I say, what else can I glean and try to figure out from game sevens? And I look at what pitchers do when they have to come back on short rest, which is what I'm telling you has to happen for Cole and for Strasburg. And it turns out that players on short rest are wholly ineffective. Except my experience tells me that we have Josh Beckett who came back. We had several pitchers, Randy Johnson, who we watched, who come back and they're hugely effective on short rest when they know it's their final appearance of the season. However, there's a twist. It's called the Borist. Yes, that's the Scott Boris twist. The Borist. Garrett Cole and Steven Strasburg are both Scott Boris players. What do you do when you are about to be a free agent? You're about to make the most money, maybe even more than Bryce Harper, maybe more than Patrick Corbin, who signed with the Nationals, more than Max Scherzer, who signed with the Nationals. Do you have them come out and pitch when their arms are tired? Is a ring worth it to Mr. Boris or to Mr. Cole or to Mr. Strasburg? Will they get more in free agency for being the winning pitcher in Game 7 versus the losing pitcher in Game 7? And I'm sorry to tell you, folks, 
The answer is no. The juice is actually not worth the squeeze. Because winning the ring is not what it's all about for the players. It's about making sure that they are healthy enough to get paid in free agency. If you can win in addition, that's a bonus. But if any player tells you that they're in it solely to win, that's not accurate. They are there to support their family and friends and to get as much money from ownership as they possibly can. And the agent's job is to do the same thing. So for one minute you believe that Scott Boris as an agent is not speaking to his players about their health and protecting their health, then you're crazy. And I know this because Steven Strasburg himself shut himself down in the 2012 playoffs and now is being complimented for doing it for being so good now, as though shutting himself down in 2012 made him so good in 2019. They're not related at all. He still has one Tommy John under his belt. He's still going to pitch at 31 as a free agent. It's still a high-risk signing for whoever does it. Cole is 29 younger, a better signing. But as a fan of baseball and as a fan of these teams wanting to watch the best players possible, it's not going to happen unless they're feeling perfect and they ignore their agent. Well, it says here that Cole ignores it more than Strasburg. Cole pitches, the Astros win. That's a combo pick of the day and wait to see. Take the Astros. I am sorry, Houston, because I'm almost guaranteeing the Nats win the game. But take the Astros. And then my wait to see, I'm 2-0 and on wait to sees. Remember, we're going to keep track. We're accountable for it. Number one, the World Series went seven games. I told you. That's 1-0. Number two, we told you there'd be a postponement in the ALCS. That's 2-0. and My wait to see tonight is that Cole will take the mound. Wait to see Garrett Cole make World Series history and build his legacy going into free agency as he helps the Astros win the World Series. Because remember, to everybody, it's just business. It's nothing personal.